Okay. Beside formats, formatting issues, any other questions or anything from any of this? Why, hello! All the way from Florida. Siobhan. I just want to say thank you for connecting the dots between the, the serpent pole and Christ. I'd never seen it that way. Thank before. you guys for being patient enough to let me connect the dots. Um, I mean, we covered 10 verses, but even at 10 verses, there's 71 in this chapter. We're going to be here a bit longer. So thank you for your patience. It's, it's a rich, rich chapter. Um, okay, other thoughts, questions on anything that's covered? We've got all sorts of places we can go, and no talking about boats. Um, anything, anybody? Go ahead, Owen. Owen's got his hand like halfway up. He's like, okay, yeah, Owen. So Jesus keeps us because of his love for the Father. That's his main reason. That's his ultimate reason. The, the challenge, I don't want to minimize Christ's love for us. The, the, the Bible makes that clear. Jesus even speaks about loving them. Having, go to John 13. John 13 begins this way. It's, it's not... The challenge is, I don't want to minimize his love for us. I want to elevate and exalt his commitment and love to his Father. So, and again, it's tough because to our ears, to hear that we're not the absolute sparkle in your eye makes you think, oh, well, you don't care about me. So, look at how 13.1 begins. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus' love for us is great. And, and we sing regularly of his love, and we rejoice in his love. And I'm just saying, without diminishing that in the slightest, Jesus we know when he push comes to shove, his ultimate commitment is to his Father's will. So in the garden, when he says, let this cup pass, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So an absolute, this is why I don't like the song above all. Because in a song that really, by the time we get to above all, the verse makes it clear we're talking pinnacle, above all powers and above all things and above this. So when you finally get to, you thought of me above all. No, he thought of his father's will above all. If we're absolutely wanting to get to the pinnacle of that mountain of the will of Christ, it's commitment to his father's will. So that's what we're getting here, which is not in any way, should not in any way minimize he loved us, he cared for us, he loved us to the full. But our security in Christ in John 6 is grounded in the son's commitment to do his father's will. That's, that's the point I'm making here. So it's not, it doesn't have to be either or. This is ultimate rationality. This is ultimate motive. Does that make sense at all? Okay. Jake Hopper. Lest we think this be bad news, far from it, we're actually, our salvation is guaranteed in both directions, as it were, because of that inter-Trinitarian inter love you were speaking of. Because on the one hand, God who loves the Son, God the Father who loves the Son, says, I give you a people, a people to worship you. I predestined for you a people. You yeah. will be their king. So on the one hand, God is, we're guaranteed from that direction. God says, don't lose them. And Jesus, God, you know, the Son says, 
because I love the Father so much, I will do exactly what you told me to, and I will lose none of them. So we're actually guaranteed from two directions, in, in a matter of speaking, which is actually really good, encouraging news for us who worry all, all through our lives about you know, our security. And it's not bad news. Well, you know, God guarantees us, and Jesus guarantees us, and it is based on their love for each other, and it's, a, it's good news. Yeah, if you go back to John 17, I want to get to the end game. Why would the father give a people to his son? Why would the son receive them and redeem them? The end game, the end state, the final goal of this intra-Trinitarian love gift. It comes up a little bit. We we ended in verse 20. Um, Let's keep reading. In verse 20, 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the next step is the unif- being unified as believers, oneness we aren't going to achieve that in this life if you think we've got enough unity the the model the, the note of comparison is the unificate how unified the father and the son are that to that degree um, they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as they loved me verse 24 father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's, that's the end game. The father giving his son a redeemed people on condition that the son redeemed them, that the son might be exalted, glorified in their midst, and that they might behold, enjoy, and share in his glory. That's, like I, like I used the very, very weak analogy, but we just got through the graduation season, and these proud parents... Their, their, their children accomplished something. They got good grades. They accomplished a sport. And, and they want people to see the glory of their accomplishments. And it's a little glory. You don't leave for days in awe. But no doubt, it's a glorification. It's, they're glorifying what their, their son and their daughter did and their, their achievements. The father is pleased in his son and creates a context and an audience to behold the glory of his son. That's what we're caught up in. That is the ultimate end of creation. Um, And there we are, beholding his glory, sharing in it. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's where all this is going to. And, And we're caught up in that and our security is anchored in that. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Other. Oh, Lee. Uh, also- oh, my God, it's not on. Or your son turns yes, it off. There, <laughs> imagine that. Uh, yes. Uh, well, the this what Owen said is what I had been thinking too. How God is the ultimate guarantor guarantor of our are being kept and that and when I think about it it's so weird that God God gives Jesus here's like a basket of 
crappy, broken people. It's yours. Basket of deplorables. Yes, exactly. And and it's yours. And you get to die for them. And and what a weird and glorious plan that we we could have never thought of that. That which yeah. proves to me the Bible is true because who would have ever thought of that? And so he yeah. saves them, cleans them up, and then also speaking of the Trinity, then we also get the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So we are like triple blessed and kept and sealed. So. Well, and I said when Jesus prays that the Father would keep them, that is that answer is supplied in the gift of the Holy Spirit, who according to Paul in Ephesians one is the seal the and seal. guarantor of our inheritance. I think it's guarantor. Okay. Yes. Mother, thank you. Your- yeah, I knew it wasn't guarantee-er, but yes, that's right. <laughs> guarantor. Very well. Thank okay. you. <laughs> hey, look, the few times I know what the word is, I want to I I get my points. Okay. Um, All right. But no, no, it, it is a Trinitarian activity to keep us saved. Yeah. Um, the Son interceding for us, the Spirit sealing us, the Father preserving us, with giving us grace. Yeah, it's, it's the entire Trinity as it worked in our salvation and keeping us saved and bringing us to glory. Yeah, because really, um, if it was up to us, we would be leaping right. out of that basket repeatedly into, into the fire, literally. Well, you, just, so. yeah, you see the Israelites in the wilderness, and yeah. like if you read the Israelites in the wilderness and think they're a bunch of knuckleheads and don't conclude, that's me. No, it's I see me all over the place. Oh yeah, like, oh yeah. I'd be leading the rebellion. <laughs> so no. Anyway. Yeah, the ground would have swallowed me. Um, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Oh, Greg Sweet. Well, I think uh, indicative of uh, how loved we are by the Father is that we even have that question. We're the clay pots, mm. and we're wondering now: Does God love His own essence? greater than he loves me, his worthless creation. And the fact that we would even ask that question suggests that we're feeling pretty loved down here. Well, it's, I think that came up in the rise of the whole sort of self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement is onto something. I think the way the self-esteem movement frames what they're onto is not helpful. Um, The self-esteem movement, I think in this, this, it's more in the last 40 years or so. But, I mean, Christian leaders have wrote about this, and people became really convinced that people's, like, biggest problem is negative self-perception, low self-esteem. And, no, no, it is something. I don't think it's helpful to call that low self-esteem. I think here's, a, here's biblical categories, honor and shame. And all of a sudden you read the Proverbs, and people, it, these are real things. Shame is a real thing. Not just shame from sin. There's different types of shame. There's shame from nakedness, right? So God tells Israel he will uncover her nakedness to her lovers. It's, I'm going to put you to shame amongst the nations. Um, there's a shame that comes from your extended family members. The Proverbs make it clear that a certain son or daughter can be ashamed of their parents. And in that case, it's not that you did something. It's like, I reared them. I'm ashamed. I mean, so honor and shame, and put it the other way, whoever believes him will not be put to shame, right? He will not be ashamed when he contends with his foes in the gates. So, and when you consider that the oldest cultures, the Eastern cultures are all about honor and shame, they're at least recognizing that these are big, serious, weighty categories. And again, not that the Eastern religions and cultures have good ways of dealing with it, but that they recognize Honor and shame is a big deal. The problem is the West came across shame, decided they didn't like it, and then just was going to sort of magic wand it away. No one should feel bad. You should just you should just feel good, affirm. 
well, of course, that's far too simplistic, and it doesn't work anyway, you know. Um, so in the midst of that self-esteem movement, the way they imported it into the gospel was um, the gospel became a declaration of our worth. And so I won't say who I'm quoting, but I'm quoting somebody you all would know who said Jesus wouldn't die for garbage, which makes the gospel into God's shrewd business venture. You know, the guy who goes through the, 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 the uh, antique shop and he spots the corrupted, valuable, priceless in, you know, instrument and he shrewdly buys it. The man who sees a treasure in a field and he goes and sells everything he has to get it. God saw our potential. And then God in the scales decides, well, my son, these people with their limitless potential and he weighs the scales out. Yeah, they're worth it. Now, no one is going to press it forward that far. But that is what you're setting in motion when you make the gospel about our worth. You, you're, and, and it's an attempt because people think that's what people need to hear. You're not going to feel loved. You're not going to feel valuable until you're told you were worth it. And then people say things like, if I was the only one, Jesus would die for even me. I'm not disagreeing with that. I just don't know of any verse that backs that up. Um, it may or may not be true. I just think it's an extra biblical statement. Um, and so now we don't counteract that by saying, he doesn't care about you at all. You're worth, you know. He makes the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love this. He loved her. I think this is first with Leah. And because he loved her, she was lovely. His love makes us lovely. Um, we become honorable and lovely. And we become what he would have us to become. And we will reign with him. And, and all this is true. But no, the gospel is not about our worth. It, the whole thing supposed to be amazing is despite what we deserve, grace. We're supposed to just be awed by grace, not, yeah, yeah, God, God saw a really good opportunity with me, and <laughs> he wasn't about to let that pass up. Now, not that anyone saying it would actually say it. I'm, I'm exaggerating it to try to show what I don't like about it, but that is kind of the, the mentality. So, sorry, sorry, guys, a long-winded answer, but it's me, so what do you expect? Um, Okay, Lee, are you, Lee's going back again. Okay. Well, that reminds me of something my mom said when she was she's when she gives her testimony that when she heard the gospel about how we are fallen, broken people, she said, "Well, that's what's wrong. It just fit, you know. It fits your life. You look and you say, well, no wonder I screwed up so many times. I mean, not my not my mom in particular, but all of us that we say, oh, I am a sinner. I am fallen. I do need a savior. Yeah. It makes so much more sense in, in with human nature. Yeah. I think anyway." Any other, oh, any other, uh, any other questions? Serena, and then Kristen, and then Renee, and then we can go from there. But Serena, you're first. Kristen, you're on in, on deck. That's a sports thing, right? Okay. Um, if you have time, do you want to touch on the other inferiority judgments that the other categories that you, you know, I'm referencing, right? Sure, 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 sure. Well, uh, um. I think Lou Priolo, I could be wrong. I think, I think it's him. If you want to go a step further with shame, um, there's at least three categories of shame or negative judgments you can have against yourself. And all three of them are different in how you need to respond to them. There's the shame and the inferiority judgments that simply come from sloppy thinking. Um, 
you know, you don't get something you want. You're not the first person picked for the team. And then you tell yourself, no one likes me. No one, right. You, you see that, um, even in the, even in numbers 21, we, we have no food. Well, accept this stuff we're sick of. And so sometimes the, the, the negative, the shame, the negative self judgments, the inferiority complex, the low self esteem really just comes from not being careless and sloppy in your thinking. In which case, Romans 12, everyone should think soberly as he ought to think about himself, that no one ought to think more of himself than he should, but with sober judgment. So sometimes it's just like, that's not true. We're leaving important truth out, right? That's, in that case, what's the, what's the solution? Think rightly, correct your thinking, gird up the loins of your mind and think rightly. The second category would be accurate, but not, but your value system's out of whack. You know, the person who is dismayed because they're not going to be a professional basketball player. Now there's a certain level of dismay if that was like something you wanted and you're dismayed, that makes sense. If like you just, I'm worthless and I'm not, if, if your entire worth is based on this, there's a point where you say to somebody, this isn't a matter of righteousness. God's not displeased with you because you can't dunk. Um, you, you, your value system is out of whack. And here, the solution is to change the value system. You ought not to feel shame because you can't dunk. You ought not to feel like a loser because you're not the, you can't hit the Grand Slam home run. And there's, a, there's an appropriate level of chagrin and dismay. There's an appropriate level of, of loss. You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Fair enough. But there can be a, dis you know, and we've seen this with people and ourselves as well, caring way too much about things that aren't nearly that consequential. And so now the solution would be more reordering the, our affections, recognizing potentially even idolatrous affections. And no, you're right. You, you won't, you know, you won't be able to do that. You need, you need to, you need to adjust your affections, your heart, pray that the Lord would do that. And the third category would be, um, right and true judgments about things that are weighty. You know, the father says, I'm a terrible father. Well, maybe you are. Now what's we're called for repentance and change. You know, I'm a terrible gossip. Maybe you are. If that's true, shame is appropriate. I remember talking to somebody who seemed amazed at this. It is completely right and fitting for us to feel shame from our sin while we haven't dealt with it. In fact, James says that. In James chapter four, you, were, you, you let your laughter be torn to mourning, your joy to shame. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. So this is an appropriate shame for a season, for a time. We shouldn't be living there. But yeah, if, if, you, if you sinned, if you failed, especially other people, especially if you're in a position of authority, oh yeah, it may be wholly appropriate to feel bad. But now don't stay there like a dog behind the couch, but confess, come forward, repent, change, and move forward. But those are three very different types of negative self-judgments or low self-esteem that require three very different solutions. And to sort of one-size-fits-all, pixie-dusted all the ways, everyone should feel good about themselves, no matter what. Nope, that's not true at all. There are some people who don't feel bad enough. Because that's what God would use. He uses conviction of sin to bring us to repentance. How does the Holy Spirit initially begin to deal with people? Jesus says in John 15 that when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So in one sense, telling people to feel good about themselves is, is going to inoculate them to the gospel, right? I mean, you've got to get to the point, I'm arguing this morning, you've got to get to the point where you look at Jesus on the cross and say, 
it would be wholly fitting and right for that to be me. When you're doing that, you're not feeling very worthwhile. You, I don't see how you could be or you should be. I, I'm worth a crucifixion. That's what I'm worth. I'm worth, I'm worth crucifying. So, so it's, it, it's, it's complicated. And so I certainly, and I'm trying to make pains to say is I, I am not for a moment suggesting that people identified in the secular world as having low self-esteem have nothing going on as if just get over it, that's nothing. No, it's, I think, 50 times more complicated than our culture makes in dealing with it. And it takes more nuance and it takes more precision and more question asking. Because to summarize, there's just the sloppy thinking stuff. That's not true. That's not true. I always mess it up. I always screw it up. I always get it wrong. There's a certain amount of, that's not true. Then there's the, that is true, but you seem to inordinately care about it. And now you got to recognize like, why am I so upset by the fact that I can never beat my son in a board game? I'm coming up with a silly example, but you could easily plug in things that aren't silly, right? Um, why is it that they, they have always picked last for kickball? Well, maybe because you're the worst kickball player in the group. And then there's a certain amount of like, I get that that's dismaying and you're not pleased by that. But like, if that ruins your month, maybe you care too much about it. And then you got to work with that. Or there's the legitimate, like, I'm a terrible person. Maybe you are. I got, I got good news and a cure for that. But those are all three very different systems. So anyway, you, you, yes, Serena, I'll talk about it for a few minutes. Okay. Yes, Kristen. So this is going even further back. Pause. I'm going to welcome Kristen. Thanks. You guys, you guys may remember the Bolin. <laughs> the Bollingers, uh, Rowdy and Kristen, and it's Kristen, not Kirsten, right? Kristen. Kristen. Yep. That's right. Okay, I just want to make sure. Rowdy and Kristen. They, you just got back from Florida, right? Okay. God bless you. Welcome. <laughs> and and Rowdy thinks he may have gallstones. That's what he texted me and told me. No? Okay, that's news to you. you just Tell you what, just pray for Audi in general. It won't go amiss. Okay. And now your question, Kristen. Anyway, I just wanted to welcome you back because we've been, we've been praying for you guys, looking for you guys for so long. It's a, it's a joy to see you here. Thank you. Thanks. So sometimes I think even further back, like God create, God knows everything. Yes. So why did he bother creating us knowing we would fail knowing he would have to suffer to make us right. But then I'm like, well, God does everything for his own glory, so perhaps it's all about God, nothing about us. But why would he bother? Which is maybe not an appropriate question. No, 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 but no, 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 no. That's a great. Day, First like, off, I'm going to do a sales pitch. Dark, there's dark an up-and-coming place. ABF. This fall? This fall? Still? If? Contrary to what you may have heard, Dave Lample has not gone into retirement. He's merely taking a sabbatical. And uh, Dave intends to do an ABF entirely caught up in, mo- well, he'll do more than, but I think you were even starting, why did God create and the, the purposes of God in creation and the beginning of the story. Um, so let me, let me give you the, sh- the short answer. Um, it won't be that short. No matter what you do with predestination, free will, the whole Calvinist, Arminianist argument, as you pointed out, as you said at the beginning, God knows everything. Um, So unless you want to go all the way to open theism, where to avoid what I'm about to say, there are some who will just deny God knows of the future, um, which I think is clearly off the page of the Bible at that point. But if you're going to recognize God knows everything, then whether or not he planned everything 
or not. There's a sense of tacit approval when knowing what will happen if he creates, he creates anyway, that everyone has to deal with, everyone has to face. God knew what would happen, even if he didn't ordain it. I'd go further and say he did more than no, but even if you just say all he did is no, there's a sense of he got the ball rolling and he knew where the ball would roll once he got it rolling, right? And so there's a sense in which why, why go ahead and make it if he knew it was gonna be such a mess. I think the best explanation I can come back to again is John 17. The father intends to glorify his son, and so the father creates a context in which the glory of his son can be revealed. So Jonathan Edwards asked the question, and I'm getting this channeling straight through Piper. Edwards is hard to read. Amen, Dave? Amen. But Piper does a nice job of distilling Edwards. So most of my Piper, most of my Edwards, I actually, I had a class where I had to read like 400 pages of Edwards and it's tough going. But aside from that, most of my Edwards comes through Piper. Um, is, Piper does a message, is God less glorious because he permitted or ordained evil to be? Would it be better if God stopped the serpent from going into the garden? He could have done that. He could have sent an angel with a sword and just beheaded the serpent and then we'd have no problem. He didn't do that. He could have done that. Why didn't he do it? Is it better that he did this? And the answer is um, the final st- God's final endgame state where you've got a redeemed humanity enjoying the sun, a redeemed people will enjoy, glorify, and behold the glory of the sun more fully than an unfallen people. Go to, go to Romans 9. Um, The father knows the characters of his son, but he wants he wants to first create an audience. A part of why did God create? There needs to be an audience. It's not fitting that there are not people to behold the glory of my son. A father delight in his son, and then he creates an audience, and then he creates a context for the glory of his son to be put on display. So I'm just going to Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show, there's the notion of reveal, manifest, put on display, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, to show, to reveal, to display, same concept, uh, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Who needs mercy in an unfallen world? Nobody. If, if God is merciful, how does that ever get shown or revealed? without objects of mercy. I mean, I'm filling in some gaps logically. Romans 9 gives me, God intends to display these things. And then I think, you kind of need a fall to put some of these things on display. Now, I'm supplying that block logically. Fair enough, the text doesn't say that. But I'll step that far out in the ice and say, if God's intention is to show the full-orbed nature of his character, including he's a savior, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy... Well, it kind of gives a reason why there were these things, what the Lord would allow, ordain, whichever end of the spectrum you want to get to. He knew it was going to happen before he said, let there be. And he said, let there be anyway. It's better for, an, for a redeemed people to behold the glory of the sun than an unfallen people. I, I have to conclude that. So, but that gets back to it's about a father honoring his son. It's not about us in the first instance. It becomes about us second circle, third circle out in a very serious way. But first instance, it's about a father glorifying his son and displaying the glory of his son. 
No, no, and these are heavy, hard things. And if, if you're hearing this for the first time and you're chewing on it and it's, it's, it's hard, take your time, work on it. These are heavy, heavy, heavy things. But um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that has to be the answer. So which means Renee is next. Well done on that. Very good. <laughs> okay. Um, and I agree with what Siobhan said. Thank you for clarifying about the serpent on the... Uh, raised rod and how that was looking on judgment and that made me think of 2nd Corinthians 521 um, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him Mm. now it seems to me that one time I read a version that said to become sin is there any version of the Bible that says that that's what the Greek says okay so the issue simply is what does that mean yes Um, (laughs) he made him who knew no sin to be sin Yes. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think, yeah. I mean, I, let me see what the ESV says there. Um, my, my short answer is I simply think Paul is insisting that Jesus becomes truly guilty. I mean, I'll say it this way. Jesus became a sinner. He's the sinner who never sinned, but he becomes truly guilty. He truly takes on the sin such that Paul will say he became sin. He became sinful. He became a sinner. Who never sinned. He never sinned, but on the cross, Jesus is viewed and treated. Here's what I'm saying. When God views someone as being sinful, what are they? They're sinful. On the cross, Jesus became sinful, full of sin, ours, not his own, but he truly is imputed, truly. Just as you and I in him truly are righteous, he's truly sinful on the cross. I think Paul's just trying to get that across really clearly. And and I think there is supposed to be some sort of scandalous, shocking, what? But no, I I believe the Greek behind that. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, the last verse, is I think the best simplified explanation of the gospel, 521. Because you've got double... Imputation. Imputation's the the term theologians use for crediting or reckoning. It's it's accounting language um, to somebody. So Christ is reckoned or receives, therefore imputed with our guilt, and we get imputed, credited with his righteousness. And there's what C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange. The wages of sin is death. Jesus gets our paycheck death and we get his paycheck life for his life lived and both are on display for our sake he made him to be sin that's the esv to be sin yes you got the nesb i'm curious what the nesb says same thing yeah yeah so that's that's the most literal rendering he made him to be sin which it's not like jesus like mystically becomes the concept of sin i think it is he became sinful he became guilty truly on the cross. We got to flip that by saying, not from any sin he ever did himself. Right. But he, when Jesus takes it upon himself, it's really his. It really is. That's the only way this works is for the Father to be righteous in punishing him for our sin. He has to truly have it. It's not just a sort of nice concept. Um, okay. So I have a note in my Bible. I want to make sure it's right. Yeah, yeah. To be sin, I have a little star. It says to be the bearer of all sin. Would yeah. that be correct? Yes. And, and okay. I, but I think I'd press it further. Oh. The one who bears all sin is sinful. Okay. The one who okay. bears all guilt is guilty. Oh, okay. The Greek's just to become sin. And then 
that's not a, even in Greek, a terribly common expression. So like, what do you mean? And so sometimes when you say to become sin, like he became sinful or became a sin offering. But my best understanding is simply he is so identified with the sin that you can just say he became sin. Like he, he took it all. It's on him. He's, he's right. Right. No, but he, it's truly on him. Um, it, it's truly fitting for God to pour out his wrath on the sun once the sun accepts, takes upon himself our sin. Um, it's not just an appearance or just some tip of the hat concept. That's that's my best understanding. Okay. Okay, I had another question. Oh, another question. Ask. Okay. Uh, so on the cross, when Jesus said, "I thirst," I know that was a physical thirst. Was yeah. it more because of the separation from God? I think it's just a physical thirst. There's more going on. The, the pain of the cross, yeah. the, the ultimate horror of the cross, is not the crucifixion. Right. I mean, the right. crucifixion is a horrible way to die. Yeah. Right. But I'm pretty sure we're aware that there are worse ways to die. There are, when you read about what the Nazis did in the concentration mm -hmm. camps, the issue isn't that the crucifixion is absolutely the worst possible way a person can die. Worst ways take longer, for mm -hmm. one, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the point of the crucifixion is to make it a horrible death, a top-tier yeah. terrible death. But ultimately, what is is going on is the son bearing the father's wrath it's right. the why have you forsaken me that which we don't get to see right. is pictured by the crucifixion the crucifixion mm -hmm. is, is a good way of communicating horrible death mm -hmm. um but the the true issue is bearing is the father's wrath on sin right. um and and that so what, what do we sing um when we sing stricken smitten and afflicted uh, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave, mm -hmm. right? So this is the irony of Jesus' prayer, right? So you and I are struggling with temptation. It's, it's usually sin in us craving, wanting something we shouldn't have. When Jesus is tempted in the garden, it's his holiness crying out against taking on mm -hmm. sin. I don't want to get that filthy. I don't want to get that corrupt. I don't want to be separated. I don't want to feel your displeasure. I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. Jesus' temptation is ex in the garden is exactly our temptation on his head. His holiness mm -hmm. crying out against, is there any way I could not feel your anger? Is there any way I could not feel your wrath and, dis and feel that I've displeased you? Um, so that's the stuff going on that we don't get much insight into. Um, so that's taking place behind I thirst and everything, but he says I thirst to fulfill what's written. So I wouldn't want to make everything deeply symbolic. The real atonement that's invisible is taking place while his body is being broken and bleeding and, and being killed. Um, but, but the part that makes it sufficient for us all is, is invisible. Uh, and that would be the father's wrath pour. I mean, and there's other things like the, the sun getting darkened out. I mean, God, the father is doing a lot to make it clear something real significant is happening here. There's a lot of uh, external clues. But uh, at the end of the day, the part that atones, we have to see through words. Nobody even there can see. Um, so, so, yeah. Okay. Kristen again. Back to Kristen. Sorry. Um, so I've... I've heard a pastor say, like, on the cross, Jesus became a murderer and a rapist. Like, you start putting those words instead of sin yeah. as an abstract. Sure. I guess, is that what we're saying? Like, 
his heart became that dark, no. yucky thing. No, no, no. He no, I feel no, like that's no, no, too no, no, far. No, and no, no. That's that is too far. That is too far. So here's 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 the the thing we're saying. Jesus, yeah, Jesus became guilty of lying. Jesus became guilty of murder. And in that sense, he's a murderer, right? What do you call somebody who's guilty of these things? Now, I don't mean someone who's committed the murder. This is where the language, if you want to qualify it the right way, I can accept it. No, because he's really guilty. Jesus becomes truly guilty of all the murders of the people that he's dying on the cross. Paul says there's a record of sins, as it were, nailed above him. I mean, so let's, go, let's, let's look at that. That's Galatians... Someone with a phone want to look it up to being nailed to the cross, or is it Colossians? It's one of the two. Galatians or Colossians? Where is that? Colossians. Okay, we're going to Colossians. Um, and so, if the person, Christian, if the person who said it qualified it the right way, okay. It's all about what you mean by what you say, and these are deep, heavy things. So let's just look at a different word picture the scripture uses. Where is it? Is that in two or I think it's in two. Maybe it's even in one. Two fourteen? Two fourteen. Okay, let's go there. Okay. I'll start in twelve. <coughs> Therefore, my beloved, as you No, that's Philippians. Sorry. Good grief. Physician heal thyself. Okay. Um, let's go back to verse. Um, let's actually go back to the beginning of the paragraph. Let's go back to eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head over all in authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what is nailed to the cross in the first instance when Pilate puts up king of the Jews? What's being nailed? It's the charges against you, right? So the picture of our sins being nailed to the cross is Jesus is charged with our sins. And unlike Pilate, who does it as a joke, God's justice is holy. If God's going to punish Jesus for my sins, Jesus has to be guilty of my sins. He has to truly take it upon himself. So that's, that's where he becomes guilty of murder. He's never committed the murder. He's guilty of murder. Is that In the same way that if you're a Christian, you're guilty of righteousness, perfect righteousness. You've never performed perfect righteousness, but it's yours. God will truly treat you that way. And we say you are. That's why Paul keeps talking about your saints, your saints. To the Corinthian church, saints and set apart and holy. And you think of all the problems they have because it truly is how God regards you. So in one sense, it truly is who you are. That exact same thing in reverse works with Jesus and sin. So as long as you qualify it the right way, 
if God punishes Jesus for murder and Jesus isn't guilty of murder, God's unjust. Bottom line. So imputation, where you receive or credited someone else's guilt or righteousness, is real. And it's real enough that God will act upon it. So if God is viewing Jesus as guilty of murder, then who am I to say Jesus isn't guilty of murder on the cross? On the cross, even though he never committed one. I want to put that last bit on. So no, his heart did not become corrupt with desires and corruptions. He, what you feel, the guilt you feel after you do something wicked, after you do something you shouldn't do, that, that's all on Jesus. He becomes truly guilty. Um, he bears the weight of our, he takes those actions. He says, I'll, I'll take those. That's, that's the reality, I think, that's being spoken of when he became sin. No, he never did that on the cross. He didn't get like twisted evil desires. and No, no, no. He became truly guilty and felt all the consequences of being truly guilty. Imagine his own conscience. I'm just guessing at things, but I know what it means for me to feel truly guilty. And there's an inward condemnation Paul talks about. Their own conscience is accusing and excusing them. Who knows what it feels like? I'm, I, I want to. These are holy grounds. Who knows what that entails? He dreaded it in the garden. I know that. Le, oh, Lu, Lucas. Okay, in the book of Job nine, it says he removes the mountains, and they do not know when he over. Turns them in his anger. Mm. That was in what Job says to the Corinthians church. God's anger and his wrath overturns mountains. Yes. Lee. I'm thinking the, of Christ on the cross and kind of like think about, they say uh, there's been a murder, murder uh, committed. The police come and get you. Actually, they came and got Jesus. He didn't commit the murder. Right. But that's what was kind of put up there was a warrant mm. that uh, the charges against us yeah. were put on him. So it's more of a legal thing. But still, it was still uh, enough to make that that chasm between Christ and his father, that Christ was saying, yes, I will go to jail, so to speak. Let, let, me, let me press it further than that, though. Okay. I'm going to argue, based on Romans, the just as so then at the end of Romans 5, just as through one man, da, 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 so through. Jesus, our, the imputation of our sin to Jesus has to mirror his imputation of righteousness to us. And so if you just want to say, well, it's not real, it's just illegal. You're just legally righteously. I mean, it's not real, it's just legally. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stop there with that, right? No, but it's, it's legally in the courts of heaven where it really counts. Well, that, what I'm, and this gets back to, however God sees something is reality. If God sees yes. Jesus as guilty, yes. who am I to say he's not? Right. That's where, I'm, that's where I'm saying, look, if God is willing to treat Jesus as guilty, mm-hmm. he sees him as guilty, then he's guilty. Right. He's, he, and, but that's why I'm saying is he didn't, like you say, he didn't have those desires, that, no. that rotten corruption that we no. have. But he, he positionally stepped yeah. into our place and yes. said, I will carry this burden yes. and this guilt. Pat, Patty wants to say something. I'm almost scared to. Would the degree of his wrath have been... Um, changed because of our future sin. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Jesus, and this is, this, okay, 
Go. We got two minutes. I'm going to open up that. Let me think. No, let me think. No, no, no. Uh, let me, let me, let me just put this on the T, and we'll hit this more next week. You, there, depending on again the whole Calvinist Arminian predestination, not predestination. Um, depending on how you come at that, and I, I'll lay my cards on the table. I am very strong on the sovereignty of God. I'm very comfortable in those circumstances being called a Calvinist. Um, I'm quite comfortable with that usually. Um, you either view Christ on the cross dying for sin in general, in the abstract, just a sin payment. If you, you do that so that he could pay for the sins of all sorts, everybody, right? If, however, you think Jesus dies for a specific list of sins, well, then this now we're quantifiable. And it, it's, yes, my sin this morning, my sin next week, made the cross that much worse for Jesus. Yes, the language of record of wrongs would be part of the reason I would think, no, it's a finite list of sins. It's a huge finite list of sins, but it's not infinite. It's a finite list of sins. There's a record of actual things. There's a, there's a particular number of murders and molestations and rapes. There's a particular number. I don't know what the number is. But there's actual people's sins being borne by him, not just sin in the abstract. That's, yeah, but, but depending on which way you come down on that whole concept, you either end up with a, like, again, Colossians to me, a record of wrongs. I, I wouldn't make that argument solely from there, but that would, I think, would be in keeping with it. No, there's a, there's a particular list of sins that Jesus paid for. And yeah, every bit of that makes it worse. Every bit. Oh, yes, with names attached. Now, 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 I wouldn't want to beat somebody over the head with that. You can just picture some parent, you know, think of how Jesus feels on the cross because of how you talk today. I, I, I want to be very careful what you do with that, um, lest you turn it into some whip to, to bludgeon somebody with. Nowhere in the scripture do I see that angle being treated. But if you want to do it in worship and in awe and in self-abasement and, and in... Wonder, go for it. Go for it. We're at time, people. Have a happy Father's Day. See you all next week.